Tonight, why don't we turn in our Bibles once again to the book of Isaiah. Last week, we started our new study in the book of Isaiah together as we continued journeying through the Old Testament together. We went through chapter 1 and kind of took an introductory look at Isaiah's prophecy. As we saw last time together, Isaiah was speaking during the time of the reign of the kings uh, Uzziah, Jotham, As Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, kings that were reigning in the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we come into chapter 2 now this evening, uh, we're told that this next vision that Isaiah received, we'll see, was again regarding the southern kingdom specifically uh, of the nation of Judah, as it was referred to. Again, remember during the time of the divided kingdom, you had the ten northern tribes referred to as Israel. Uh, they ultimately experienced the downfall first to the Assyrian Empire. Then Assyria began to threaten the southern kingdom. Uh, ultimately, God was merciful and uh, spared them. But, of course, ultimately the southern kingdom then falls to the next world empire at that time, which was the nation of Babylon under the time of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which we'll see transpire ultimately. But Isaiah receiving these visions, ministering during a season where both the north and the south were still in existence, uh, and then ultimately, predominantly, the majority of his ministry to the southern kingdom. And as we come to chapter 2 now, we do get another reference to a vision, something that he saw. Again, keep in mind, this wasn't just something he was hearing, but something he was actually seeing, which makes it very interesting to think about what was he actually seeing as he's recording these things, and we talked last time about this idea of understanding that with the prophets, there often was both a near and a far fulfillment to some of the things they were speaking about. So sometimes they would be speaking of things that had both dynamics. There would be a partial fulfillment in the near sense, in the present time historically, or in the very near future historically, and then sometimes the ultimate or complete fulfillment would also be something way further out uh, for the complete fulfillment. And then other times we find them speaking and it seems that perhaps they're only speaking about something in the present tense historically or only exclusively speaking about something that's referencing something way down into the future. So you kind of have this back and forth of kind of zooming in with the microscope and then sometimes pulling back with a telescope and looking way further out. And, and the first few verses of chapter 2 do seem to give us kind of that telescopic view of looking way down further into the ages to come. It tells us, verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then we begin to see verse 2 down through verse Four, describing something which very clearly seems to be looking out to the latter days. It says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, or Jerusalem, shall go forth the law, that is the law of the Lord, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. 
They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. So verse 2 begins by telling us that these things will come to pass, already telling us looking beyond the present moment, these were things that will come to pass, that shall come to pass, he says, in the latter days. Now, when we see that phrase, latter days, more often than not, it is a reference to the time period of the Messiah's reign on earth, often what we would describe as as the millennium or the kingdom age, that thousand-year reign of Christ that the Bible speaks to us about, where after Jesus raptures the church off of the planet and he draws us as believers into heaven with him, and then there is a seven-year period, the time of Jacob's trouble, a time where God will exclusively work uniquely, not only among the nation of Israel, fulfilling one final seven-year period, as Daniel 9 refers to, but during that time, that seven-year period of tribulation, there will also be severe judgment, of course, happening upon the earth, where God is, in a sense, justly punishing and bringing consequence against the Christ-rejecting world and the humanity that is left upon the planet who have refused the offer of Jesus Christ's salvation. And then at the end of that seven-year period in the time of the Antichrist, as he comes in the midst of the scene during that time, Jesus will then return back to the earth, often what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, where he returns back to the earth, you and I as believers coming back with him during that time to then rule and reign together with him on this earth, where he then sets up his kingdom and he will reign upon the earth for a thousand years, the Bible refers to, the kingdom age. Remember, we just saw in our study this last Sunday morning where Jesus gave the promise to believers that he tells us that we shall reign together with him. Uh, and that is that time period in which that will happen when we, having been tucked away safely, I believe, in heaven, why the wrath of the Lamb is poured out upon the earth during the seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of that, we return with Jesus he sets up his reign upon this earth. He takes rightful rulership over the earth, and there will be a thousand-year age, the kingdom age, which then, of course, culminates into the coming of the new Jerusalem and eternity future, often what we think of as heaven or being in eternity forever. But the Bible does speak of this reign of the Messiah upon the earth, and it seems very clearly that this is what Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is giving to us some description of this time period of the kingdom age where Jesus will have returned and he will be reigning as the rightful ruler over the earth, having set up his throne. There will be a new temple in existence during that thousand-year reign of Christ, and he describes some of the characterizing marks some of the environment or atmosphere during that time when Christ is reigning there in Jerusalem as the rightful king. It says, the mountains of the Lord house shall be established there on the top of the mountains and exalted, lifted up. And notice the end of verse two, he says, and all nations will be flowing to it. The idea there is people from all nations on the planet will be journeying to not only Israel, but journeying to Jerusalem where Jesus is reigning as the king of kings at that time, and they will be coming to Jesus to seek the Lord. It tells us, look at it there in verse 3, it says, many shall come, that is, of all nations coming to Jerusalem, 
coming and saying, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and then, of course, referring to Jesus as king. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. So notice, many will come in that time period seeking to hear, to know the word of the Lord, to understand the ways of the Lord. Isaiah uh, describes it here. Zechariah describes this in chapter 8. Let me read you a very similar passage. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20 to 23, describes this time period this way. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. So the Bible describes this time where our Lord Jesus Christ will be reigning there on his throne in Jerusalem. Many nations will be coming to Jerusalem to seek Jesus, to be in the presence of God, knowing that Christ is God and that he is Messiah. It says 10 men will be grabbing the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, please, we've heard God's in your midst. Bring us to the king. Bring us to him. We want to seek him together with you. And they'll be going, it says, to the house of the Lord, desiring to actually learn from him. I love how verse 3 tells us, in fact, I have these four words circled because it means I am out of a job at this point. It says, he will teach us his ways. Can you imagine what those Bible studies are going to be like? Imagine what those lessons are going to be like to actually have God himself teaching us the word of God, to have Jesus himself expounding the scriptures, teaching us of his ways. Jesus will be there teaching, and humanity won't just be there listening to Bible teaching and wanting to understand more of the scriptures and more of what the ways of the Lord truly mean, but it says, and we in that time, humanity will be wanting to, look what it says, walk in his paths. So it won't just be showing up to learn lessons of scripture, and wow, this is incredible. God himself is in our midst teaching us the scriptures, expounding the word of God to us. But notice, humanity will actually desire to walk out the pathway of right living. It says that we shall not only have him teaching us, but we shall walk in his paths. People will be living out the ways of the Lord rather than the ways of the world. Rather than the ways of their own flesh, this will be a characterizing mark of the kingdom age. Hearing the word of the Lord, people will be walking in the pathways of God's word. It says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the word of God will be governing humanity at that time. It will be an enforced righteousness and the word of God will be going out of Jerusalem like a source. It will be spreading and covering the entire earth and governing all that's happening on the earth. When we get to chapter 11 of Isaiah, 
it describes exactly how this is going to be happening to a great degree. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9 tells us one of the byproducts of the time of the kingdom age is not only great peacefulness on the earth during the time of the reign of Christ, but it says, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine what that is going to be like, the earth being full, not of the foolishness of human ideas, not of the insanity of corrupted minds of human beings, but the earth, it says, being full of the knowledge of the Lord. All over the earth, people knowing the Lord personally, people knowing what it means to honor the Lord, how to live righteously, that there will be a great spreading of the word of the Lord all over the planet during this time of the kingdom age. And as Christ is reigning, notice another mark of the kingdom age as it says during that time, verse 4, that he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. The idea there describing how Jesus will be ruling as king it's an enforced righteousness, and Jesus, the rightful king, when he finally reigns as the prince of peace, will finally mediate all international disputes. Finally, Jesus will bring resolution to all international problems between nations. He will bring a major change, and his rule is what will bring peace upon the earth. And look, this is so important to recognize because until the rightful king is ruling Jesus in Jerusalem, there is never going to be complete peace on the earth. There is no way we are going to elect any official, whether in the United States or anywhere internationally for that matter, that ultimately will bring peace among humanity. Only Jesus is going to bring that. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus is going to bring that. And can you imagine having the privilege to live during that, to experience harmony on the earth and peace in many ways, what was a part of, to some degree, what the Garden of Eden and Paradise existence originally was. There was no angst and hatred and bigotry and, and, and brutality and cruelty. Look what he says in verse 4, during that time when Christ is reigning and he's enforcing righteousness and the rightful Prince of Peace is on his throne, Jesus, it says, they shall in that time beat their swords, these are weapons of war, beat their swords into plowshares, farming instruments, their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, I think one of the last you know, times I had heard the uh, military or defense budget right now for the world is somewhere close to two trillion dollars per year two trillion dollars per year at that time if my memory serves me correct the united states of america's uh, uh, military budget was somewhere north of 700 billion dollars per year which is greater than the other seven nations following combined <laughs> How much money gets spent on military arsenal and defense and, and training for war and preparing for war and being ready for war and humanity destroying itself. And notice the Bible says in the age of the kingdom of God, all military budgets, all military technology, 
all military production and weapons of war to destroy one another will all be changed and they'll be used for agriculture. They'll be used to help humanity instead of destroy humanity. They'll be used to bless one another and take care of one another to produce food. So keep that in mind. You're going to be in the kingdom. Remember, the money isn't in warfare. The money is ultimately in agricultural. So just if you want to keep that in mind, it's going to be a, an agrarian experience then, not a time of warfare and aggression. Look, I, let me just say, this isn't the kingdom yet. So because it's not the kingdom yet, you better not start beating your swords into plowshares yet and turning your pruning hooks you know, into farming instruments because right now nations are still battling against nations. And that's why right now there is a legitimate biblical need for a, a, a police department and a military and, and defense. And these are necessary things because this isn't the kingdom. And we can't bring to pass the kingdom of God on this earth. That's a ridiculous idea. And this idea of, oh, we got to just bring peace, bring peace, bring peace. That sounds wonderful. But there are a lot of people in this age that don't want peace. And so that's why it is necessary now to be able to rightfully defend ourselves and be wise and mankind can't govern himself. And there are evil people on this planet. And because there are evil people on this planet, God has instituted things like government and law enforcement and militaries. And sometimes it is a necessity for there to be the engagement at times, even in these use of these things and bearing weapons and protecting and so forth. But the wonderful thing is to realize that there's coming a day when Jesus returns when there'll be no more need for that. Can you imagine when Jesus is reigning to live in a period, to live in a time where there's no longer a need for any of those things? And we'll see more description as Isaiah goes further on of the characterizing marks of this glorious kingdom that we're going to get to live in, where there's absolute harmony and peacefulness and no threat of things to harm and to destroy. Verse five, he says, O house of Jacob, come, he says, in light of this, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah seems to exhort saying here to his people, listen, in light of the reality that these things are coming one day, let us live in light of those things. Let us walk, he says, in response, in the light of the Lord. The idea is in the light of the Lord now. See, Isaiah understood as a prophet, as we all should understand, this exhortation of the importance and value of walking in the Lord's light. Because there really are only two options, if you think about it. The only two options to select from is we can walk in the darkness of the world system. We can walk in the darkness of the devil's ideas, or we can walk in the darkness of our own flesh and humanity or we can walk in the light of the Lord and realize that the most valuable thing that we can do is to live in the pathway of the Lord's light. That is the absolute best way to live life. You know, this reminds us of the New Testament. Remember when Jesus said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Paul tells the Ephesians when he writes to them, to walk and to live as children of light. Again, and this is just such a wise thing to realize that Jesus gives us light. And as we stay close to the Lord, even though we live right now, and even though as it was in that day in Israel's time period that Isaiah was speaking, those were dark days. And if you haven't noticed, these are pretty dark days. But we don't have to live in the darkness. 
even as we go through this dark time period coming to the return of the Lord, we have the privilege in light of understanding what's coming. Hey, we know, verses 1 through 4, we, we know there's a kingdom coming. And we know that when Jesus comes, then everything will be made right. And in the interim, the best thing we can do is let us walk in the light of the Lord so that we navigate this time well, being wise as serpents, gentle as doves, understanding the balance that sometimes we're to walk in the gentleness and the meekness of Christ, and other times we are to be wise, shrewd, discerning, serpent-like individuals who can make strategic decisions and understand how to overcome evil or to subdue what's wrong, to stand for righteousness, and that we know when's the right time to do both as we live in the midst of very dark days. So he encourages us, walk in the light of the Lord. Let him direct your steps. Now he goes on, verse 6, to then begin to describe, it seems, some of the decline that was happening morally in this time period historically that Isaiah was speaking. He says, verse 6, for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, and here's why God had pulled back from them, because they are filled, interesting, he says they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and are pleased with the children of foreigners. So the people notice the Holy Spirit says in that time had pushed away the Lord's involvement in their lives. He says here, because they had turned to eastern ways. The idea is the ways of the Philistines, the ways of the Assyrians, the ways of the Babylonians at time, which were all pagan, cultic, religious practices that were rooted in, in their eastern ways, they were rooted in and tied to demonic influences. They might have looked like, oh, they're relaxation techniques, they're, they're mystical, and he says, no, these eastern ways are, are inspired demonically, they are pagan in their origin, and they had pushed away the involvement of God. It led them to become, he says, soothsayers, that is, they were divining spirits that were not of the spirit of God. And they were making themselves exposed to such things and vulnerable to the influence of these things, these Eastern ways. He describes as well the time period, verse 7, saying their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasure. So notice, it was a time, apparently, of great wealth. There was great material prosperity. Even though the nation was declining morally, and though they were going off the rails and way off course spiritually, notice, for a time period, they were still prospering financially. There was great excess and affluence. He says here, the land was full of silver and gold, no end to their treasures. Their land was full of horses. Again, these were expensive things to possess. These were often used in warfare. They were used in you know, transportation and regality. Those people would ride on horses that were of more noble stature. There's no end to their chariots. Their land also, however, verse 8, notice, though they were very materially prosperous, their land is also full of idols. And again, an idol is anything that we worship or give allegiance to other than God. So they can come in many different forms. Anything that we honor and we give allegiance or devotion to other than God is a idol or a form of idolatry. And he says the land is full of idols. In other words, people were giving their devotion to all types of things instead of giving top priority to God. This was a characterizing mark of the nation at that time. People were full 
of worshiping all types of other things. He calls it at times the work of their own hands, which their own fingers have made. In other words, he's characterizing the source of much of their idolatry in all different forms. It all was rooted in just self-worship, that basically people were engaged in self-worship. They were making themselves more important than God. They lived to serve themselves and to worship, and they exalted their own desires, their preferences. In fact, many of the idols, if you look at many of the gods of the ancient cultures and the idols, many of them were gods that were fashioned after people's own passions and their own desires. And so they would make idols out of these things so that they could engage in their desires. He says, verse 9, however, people bow down, each man humbles himself therefore do not forgive them. Now, when he says people bow down and humble themselves, he's not talking about in a healthy sense. The idea is they're bowing down and humbling and yielding themselves to the authority of the other gods. So this is not a good thing. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, that is, but these people were, in a sense, yielding authority of other powers, other deities were governing over their lives. They were bowing down, bowing the knee to false gods, the idea is. Verse 10, he then says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. So notice here, he begins to describe how God was about to come in all of his power and severely judge the wrongdoing and the idolatry and the rebellion and the sinfulness of the people of Judah at that time. And here he's cautioning them about this. Now, certainly much of what's being described here as it's describing how judgment was on the horizon. And it would come, as I said, initially with the Assyrians. They would conquer the northern kingdom. They would threaten the southern kingdom. And then ultimately, it would be the Babylonians who would come with great severity as an instrument of God's judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's describing how judgment was on the horizon, and then God was about to severely, severely humble them in a great way. He says, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of mankind bowed down, and the Lord alone would be exalted in that day. Now, as he describes that historically, certainly much of what's described there is very picturesque of what is going to come to pass in the time of the tribulation after Christ removes the church and begins to bring about judgment upon the Christ-rejecting world. When you read what's described there, particularly verse 10, as he describes part of the the fear of the judgment of the Lord coming, the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty causing people to go enter into the rocks and hide in the dust. And we'll see this described a little further in the chapter. This speaks very familiarly of exactly what is described in Revelation chapter 6. We'll see when we get there where it says literally people, even great kings of the earth and powerful, influential people, that during the time where the wrath of the Lord is being poured out, that they run into caves and they begin to cry out for the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the great terror of the Lord and the coming of Jesus' wrath upon humanity. And here he describes much of what Revelation 6 describes in a very similar way. But notice, in that day, he says, man will be severely humbled and the Lord alone 
shall be exalted. In that day, nobody will think they're important anymore. Everybody will know that it's the Lord who is the ultimate and the important one. He says, verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. You notice a repetition of the language here for emphasis upon everything lifted up and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. Again, the cedars were these great, remember, strong, tall trees, pictures of great high stature. And it says, and upon all the oaks, the strong trees of Bashan, again, the strong, the lifted up, they shall be brought down. Upon all the high mountains and all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower and every fortified wall, again, they took great uh, pride in their fortified cities and their high towers. These were marks of security to humanity, and they would have an arrogant stance. They were, in a sense, impregnable. Nobody can conquer us. Nobody can stop us, the idea is. But he says, upon all the ships of Tarshish and the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down. The haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone, there's our phrase again, shall be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth, much like Revelation 6 describes men doing such in the time of the wrath of the Lamb during the tribulation, going into the rocks, hiding in the caves from the terror of the Lord and the glory of of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily in that day he says a man will cast away his idols of silver again these silver idols these gold idols they were worth so much they had so much value he says they will cast them away which they have made to the moles and the bats in other words all these valuable idols that were so important so valuable They've now become so worthless. The only thing they're good for is, hey, before we go in that cave to try and hide from the terror of the Lord, throw your gold idol in there, man. Make sure there's no bats. Throw your silver idol, just throw your statue in there. Maybe any moles are in there, they'll go running out, and then we'll go hide in there from the terror of the Lord. Amazing how things all of a sudden that seem so important are completely worthless. Things that, oh, Money and gold and wealth and stature and strength, all these things that we esteem among humanity that we think make us so secure and are so important in this life. And notice, when the terror of the Lord and the judgment of the Lord falls upon the planet, all that stuff is worthless. It is no value whatsoever. Mankind is humbled and broken and they realize their frailty to a great degree. They go into the clefts of the rock and the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now again, if you look back to verse 12, just might want to underline if you're a note taker to make reference of this, what's being described here. This is the first time that we see the use of this phrase, the day of the Lord. First time it shows up in scripture. And again, we have a way in which when we study the word of God, one of the things we refer to as the law of first mention, which means the first time a word appears in the scripture or a phrase appears in the scripture, it usually gives to us 
the best context as a frame of reference for understanding how that word is to be properly interpreted, utilized, and it gives to us that the law of first mention, okay, the first time it's mentioned, how in the context. And you can tell here, the day of the Lord here is a very clear reference to something beyond what was happening in that time historically, but something, as I said, that's looking way further out. And so this phrase, the day of the Lord here, is a reference certainly to this time period of great change when no longer it will be anymore the day of man. And picture that idea in your mind here. This is now the day of the Lord. The day of man is over. The day of man's arrogance and rebellion against God, the day of man trying to do what they want and rejecting God and resisting God and ignoring God, this is a time coming when the Lord, as being described there in our verses that we just read through, is going to interrupt human history very powerfully. And the Lord is going to severely humble mankind and overthrow their rebellion once for all. And he alone will be exalted because, in a sense, one of the things he's conveying, this is now the day of the Lord. Your day is done. Your day is over. This is now the day of the Lord, beginning that time period when, of course, as we know, there is coming a time where the day of the Lord is going to begin and it's going to interrupt human history and God is going to begin to humble and judge humanity. And humanity will be held to account, a time period that begins with the severe coming judgment of Jesus against mankind's rebellion and all that men thought was so secure on the earth, so strong, so valuable, is instantly going to become worthless. Because a time period is coming, and we'll see it in our study in the book of Revelation, when such cataclysmic judgments and severe forms of suffering will be happening on this earth to those who are left behind when Christ Jesus removes his true church and true believers, and he begins to judge the earth for a seven-year period when such severe pain and suffering and torment will happen. And it even describes not just them going into rocks and caves and saying, crying out for the rocks to fall on them and kill them, but the Bible describes a period in the midst of that when humanity will wish to die and they won't even be able to. So imagine being under such severe torment and torture and suffering and trying to die and you can't even die. You have to keep experiencing the pain and the suffering and the torment of that. And again, this is something coming upon humanity and how utterly foolish and worthless it is to depend upon mankind when we realize the true king of kings is ultimately coming to take over. That the day of the Lord is about to come past. That's why no doubt he says in verse 22, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils for of what account is he? In other words, the prophet is saying in light of the reality that the day of the Lord is coming and he is going to overthrow man's rebellion and all their pride and their erroneous ways of doing things, he's saying, you might as well disconnect from putting any dependency upon humanity. He's describing there in verse 22, the frailty of mankind. He says the very breath of man is in his nostrils, and the only reason why the breath of man is in his nostrils is because God's given him his next breath. Right? Acts 17 tells us that, that God holds within his very control the very breath of every human being. The only reason why you and I have continued to breathe during the course of this Bible study is because God gave us another breath. We have one breath within us, 
And at any given moment, God can say, that's the last one, and mankind's going to have no more breath. And he says, God is controlling the very breath, the very heartbeat of humanity, no matter how important people think they are or governments act that they are. He says, don't put your trust in human beings. Don't put your dependency upon any ruler or any kingdom. He said, there's a kingdom coming. So sever yourself from dependency upon that, thinking, oh, if we could just elect the right person, right. <laughs> it's a broken system. Has it ever worked yet since the Garden of Eden? And he says, sever yourself from the thought that your trust could be in a man who's bre- of what account is he? The idea is in comparison to what the Lord's going to do ultimately. Our trust is in a coming king, knowing that Jesus is the true one that we need reigning over us, and that's the only thing that will change things. Now, as he comes to chapter 3, you'll notice what he starts to do in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is he begins to kind of start to describe here some of the warning signs or the symptoms of a declining nation that's heading into judgment, or we may also say has already entered into the judgment of God. So he's going to begin to describe here, and I think it's important to take notice. This was true of that time historically with the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, and to a degree, from a parallel standpoint, it shows to us, God gives us here indication of some of the warning signs and some of the symptoms of a declining nation that is either heading into judgment because it's in a declining condition morally and spiritually, or it's already under the early stages of God's judgment. And so look at some of the symptoms described of this declining nation under the judgment of the Lord. He says, verse 1 of chapter 3, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, that is, their resources, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. So an indicator of a declining nation entering into the judgment of the Lord will be a shortage of resources. There will begin to be a lack, a shortage of food supplies and resources necessary for the nation. He says the Lord takes away those things as an act of his judgment. The mighty man, verse 2, and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, these are all positions of authority, the captain of 50, and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. I will give, the idea is instead, verse 4, I will give children to be their princes. The idea is to be their rulers over them. And babes, those who act like infants, now catch the parallel in this, those who act like infants to rule over them. Notice another warning sign, an indicator of a declining nation, a nation entering into or under the judgment of God, Verses 2 to 4 describe that there will be a lack of honorable and wise men to provide leadership to those people. That when a nation is in severe decline, there will be an absence of honorable, solid, wise rulers, and no one will have sound judgment anymore. He says there won't be honorable men anymore. There won't be people like a judge who can reason things out properly and make good judgments on behalf of the people. There will be no prophets speaking the word of God to people anymore. Instead, what does he say? A a mark will be of of a declining nation. He says instead, verse 4, a declining nation will be marked by immature 
childish people ruling as the leaders. He says, this is what will happen, that that nation will begin to find that it has children and babes, whether literal young people, the ideas that are incompetent and they're inexperienced because the older, wiser individuals don't have the necessary wisdom. And, and so therefore, that nation finds itself with, we might say, incompetent leaders, inexperienced rulers, people who aren't even qualified for the job. And sadly, the Bible describes what characterizes the rulers who are incompetent and inexperienced, but yet they're in places of leadership, is they're, they're childish. They reason just like little children. They behave like immature, selfish children who don't even know how to properly direct people under their leadership. Verse 5, it says, And the people will be oppressed, every one by another, every one by his neighbor. So a declining nation, people in the society will consider only what's in their best interest. Nobody will think about helping their neighbor anymore. People instead will always try and manipulate and abuse and take advantage of their neighbor because it's each man doing what's in his own best interest. There's no loving concern for one's neighbor anymore. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. So another characterizing mark or warning sign of a declining nation the younger generation will behave, he says, very disrespectfully towards the older generation. There will be an absence of respect. The younger generation will have no sense of proper honor towards those who are older than them. The picture there is even in the family. So the children, no respect for parents anymore. Just complete disregard for the authority of the parents. No proper respect for for their, their family members, for their elders, parents, grandparents, no honor in society. You have a younger generation. He describes there the child being insolent toward the elder. You have a younger generation in a declining nation where the older generation, instead of being appreciated for their wisdom and looked to and properly respected, you have a younger generation that's utterly disrespectful, just completely rude and disrespectful in the way they behave and relate to those older around them, a mark of a declining nation. Verse 6 says, And when a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying to him, uh, Hey, you have clothing. How about you be our ruler? Well, that's a great standard for a ruler. You're not running around naked. I think you qualify to be our next leader. How about we elect you? I mean, look at this. He says, you have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. So what do we see described there? That another characterizing mark of a declining nation under the judgment of God is there will be extremely low standards in regards to how selection of leadership happens. I mean, that's pretty low. Hey, you've got a robe. How about you be our next leader? And again, just this complete lowering of standards rather than truly thinking about hey, what are some appropriate qualifications if you're going to do something important like lead people? There will be just, just this diminished standard. And look, I don't know about you, but I would be lying to say that there have not been many times since I've been old enough to elect people even in our own country where at times I'm heading into election, I'm thinking, this is the best we can come up with? Really? I mean, these are the standards that we're now using to offer options of these are who our leaders are going to be. But again, this is, he says, a mark. 
of a nation in decline is there's very low standards for those who would become leaders. Look what he goes on to say, verse 7, and in that day, he will protest the one who was just asked, hey, you got a robe, how about you be our leader? He says, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house there's neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of this people. So notice another symptom of this declining nation. No one desires to take any responsibility. Nobody cares anymore. All people care about is, look, I'm just looking out for me, man. I have no interest in doing something to help other people or to resolve problems. A characterizing mark, no one wants to take responsibility to offer help. Nobody wants to work to solve problems. Everybody just says, look, that's not my problem. I, I can't fix the problems. I'm not doing something to help out. I'm not getting involved. That's not my issue. A very selfish mindset. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, he says, verse 8, because their tongue and their doing. So notice, both their actions and the way they were speaking are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. They look on their countenance. Or they look on their countenance, witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. The idea is they're not ashamed of it anymore. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. So again, notice another mark, not only the defiant spirit of rebellion in one's word and actions, but he says in verse 9 there that another characterizing mark and symptom of a nation in decline that is heading into the judgment of God or is already under the judgment of the Lord is he says they will behave in manner, he says, like Sodom. What was one of the characterizing marks of Sodom? Brazen sexual perversion, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Interesting. Remember Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Remember what it was like in the days of Noah as well? There was cruelty, barbaric activity, and there was intense sexual perversion as well during the days of Noah. And here he says the nation was declining and as they were engaging in sin, sexual perversion, deviant sexual behavior like Sodom, homosexuality, deviant perversion in their activities, he says, and, and they don't even hide it anymore. The idea is there's just a, a publicly open, brazen pursuit of deviant sexual behavior, of perversion. And there's no shame anymore. Nobody, there's not even a sense of shame over it anymore. There's not even a sense of being embarrassed about it. And he says, in doing such things, this open defiance, they don't even realize woe to their own soul. They're bringing evil upon themselves. The idea is they don't realize that in that deviant perversion and sexual behavior, as Romans 1 describes, that when God gives man over to that perverse activity and lets them have their own lustful, perverse ways, that they end up bringing destruction upon themselves. And not even realizing this brazen open perversion is just a self-destructive thing. And interesting, wounding their own soul. That's the immaterial part of us. Not even realizing such behaviors and activities not only damage the body physically, they damage the soul. Completely damage the soul of a person. Say to the righteous, he says, verse 10, that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands 
shall be given to him. So notice, there's our idea of sowing and reaping, even kind of here within the, the Old Testament described to the righteous, assure them. It's going to be well with them. In other words, everyone around you may be behaving perversely and immorally, but you keep doing what's right. The Bible says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap a harvest if we don't give up. And he says to the righteous, there's always a righteous remnant, even in the decline of any nation. And he says, look, you continue. Know that it's going to be well with you. You're going to eat the fruit of your doings. One day your reward will come, but woe to the wicked. They also will reap the reward of their hands, and they shall receive the due punishment for their evil. As for my people, children are their oppressors, verse 12. Women rule over them. O oh, my people, those who lead you, your leaders, cause you to err, and also destroy the destroy the way of your paths. Now, again, notice God's describing here another mark of a nation in decline entering into the judgment of God or already under the judgment of God is he says the leaders are causing the people to err and destroy their own lives. And notice God says a mark of a nation that is in decline and under God's judgment is he says, first of all, children are their oppressors. The idea is children, to oppress means to, in a sense, manipulate or abuse control over another person. And God says, here's a mark, is when the kids are in control. When all of a sudden now, parents don't control their kids anymore, kids begin oppressing and manipulating, controlling their parents. And the kids are in charge. Hey, this child has a different idea about their gender identity. Don't talk to the parent. The eight-year-old knows what they're doing. If the children want to do what they want to do, we need to let the children be in control. God says that's a picture of a nation under the judgment of God. That's a nation in horrible moral decline, where all of a sudden now the children are exercising authority over adults, over their parents, the idea is they have an unhealthy control in a way that they should not as children. And he describes as well, and the women ruling over them, the idea is that women were ruling over men. Why? Because there was a vacancy and an absence of male leadership. None of the men were leading anymore. All of the men had become weak-willed, and he describes here that a mark of God's judgment is not just kids being in control, but he says it's when women are ruling instead of men properly leading. And he says that won't lead to benefit in a nation. He says that's a mark of a nation in decline, a mark of a nation actually under the judgment of God. The Lord stands up to plead. The idea is against this. Stands up to judge the people. He will enter into judgment with the elders of the people and his princes saying, for you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, God says, and crushing the faces of the poor, says the Lord of hosts. Again, because there was unhealthy leadership, there was abuse of people and mistreatment in many different ways that were going on. Now, as he concludes chapter 3 here, we'll wrap up with this, he now begins to address, it seems, some of the arrogancy and some of the pride that existed in that time in the nation of Judah of some of the daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, the idea is the women, and we'll see there was a haughtiness in their spirit, an arrogancy that was another mark as a sign and symptom 
of a nation in decline. He says, because of the daughters of Zion are haughty, the idea is they're proud, they're arrogant. They walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes. The idea of wanton there means seductive eyes. So there's a pride issue, and there's also, it seems in some ways, sort of a seductive, manipulative mindset in these unhealthy women in the time of Judas' decline, walking and mincing as they go, making jingling with their feet, little things they would wear to draw attention as they would walk around. Therefore, the Lord will strike them with a scab, the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. And in that day, the Lord will take away, now notice the idea here is he's humbling them because of their pride. He says he will take away their finery the jingling anklets, the scars, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, the rings, the nose jewels, and festive apparel. You could tell they had some great malls in Judah. You could tell they got all kinds of apparel here. And this is the picture here luxury, opulence. Why were they so proud? They were mainly proud because their foremost concern was their physical appearance. There was no interest in the beauty of the inward nature of the heart. It was all about being beautiful outwardly. The culture was characterized by physical attraction alone. That's what it meant to be a successful woman. You've got to look like this. You've got to wear these things. You've got to have all these apparel things. And, and it was just a very materialistic mindset that had overcome the women in the culture where they were dressed in a sense to kill, always looking to have outward beauty. The outer garments, he says, verse 22, the purses, the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, the robes. So again, they had all these things and their primary interest was physical beauty. And look, nothing wrong with physical beauty, nothing wrong with taking care of oneself. But First Peter 3 tells the women that a godly woman should not only be concerned merely with outward appearance. That shouldn't be the only concern. That there should also be the desire to have inward beauty and not just foremost to only focus upon outward beauty because that lends itself in many ways at times to beginning to become proud and materialistic in an unhealthy way. And it begins to be something where it's drawing attention to oneself sometimes in ways beyond what is helpful. And God here speaks of kind of humbling this pride among the women in that time of this unhealthy heart attitude. It says it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Now, you, no lady wants that, right? You don't want to stink. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a grinding of sackcloth, uncomfortable, unpleasant clothes, and the branding instead of beauty. Now, here's the, 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 the outcome to what's described. Your men shall fall by the sword, your mighty men in the war. So many men would be lost because Babylon would come in. They would conquer them. Many men would die. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall being desolate, sit on the ground. Chapter 4, verse 1, we conclude with this. And in that day, after all these men have died in the war, being killed by Babylonian invasion, in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. So the women outnumber the men seven to one because so many men have died in warfare. 
He says, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. So understand what's transpiring. Because the nation in decline and so many men have died off when the foreign nation came in and conquered them, the women now outnumber the men seven to one, and they begin to go to the men in the culture and say, look, we know typically men have to work for years and provide a dowry, a payment responsibly to earn us as a bride. We also know that it is the responsibility of men in our culture to provide for us as men food and clothing and apparel to take care of us. But they say, we don't care about any of that. If you'll just marry us and let us bear children and take away our shame, we're more than content to have that alone. And they're willing to make that concession because times are so severe and bad. Notice, if you would, as this is a characterizing mark of decline in a nation, it's showing a picture of a time, notice, when there's an inversion of roles. Because see, the proper role was the men worked real hard, they accrued a dowry, they paid a high price for a bride, and then they worked really hard to provide food and clothing and provision for their wives. And these women, in a time when the nation is falling apart, says, we don't need you to be our providers as husbands. We'll provide for ourselves. We don't really need you to do that. Just marry us and give us a kid. And God says, that's a picture of a nation in decline. When women look at men and say, we really don't need you to take care of us. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need your provision. We don't need your protection. All we need you for is this and this. You're just a dumb Homer Simpson anyway. We don't need you to take care of us. And you know, it's also a very sad picture, and I will leave with this in connection to anyone single or anyone who knows someone single, how sad to see when the nation was declining that what you have is tragically these women so desperate to be married, they're making concessions and compromises just because they want to be married so bad. That's always a really bad thing. It's a very, very bad thing when a single lady finds herself so desperate to be married that she says, I'll make this concession, I just want to be married. I'll make this compromise, I just want to be married. Be careful of that. That never, ever works out well. Let's stand together and let's pray.